Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. I'm Lisa Van Boxel in Santa Fe, New Mexico at St. John's College. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, currently visiting Colorado Springs. We are doing some Emerson today. Uh, we're going to do his Divinity School address. Uh, Lise is going to give us a brief introduction and uh, start us off. Okay, so this is delivered July 15, 1838. I thought it was quite audacious because he um, gets before this group of Divinity students and basically tells them that uh, preaching has gone to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and he sort of says, what we need is a new kind of prophet. Um, and I think he implicitly offers himself as such. Um, so that's what I'd like to delve into. But let me give it a bit more of a setup. And then, Brian, if I could ask you to read part of it, especially for listeners who haven't managed to do the reading. But I would use a somewhat Nietzschean term. I think it's fair enough, but we could certainly... Uh, flesh out the definition of it. I think he thinks we've hit an age of of nihilism. Um, And I think he says uh, that nihilism goes with and is fostered by a rhetoric of castigation and a sort of stodgy insistence on the superiority of of the past or tradition as good in itself um, and as superior to the present day and future possibilities. So... um, it's deeply about rhetoric, how to speak to people in a way that's effective and good. Of course, we would need to we need to define both of those terms, certainly the good. But to counter that nihilistic, enervating rhetoric, um, he says we need a, a new type of human being, sort of an imperial guard of virtue, he calls this person. Um, this person is an original human being and a leader. So, yeah, my question is, how does this person speak? And why is this person's speech both good and effective? So since it's a relatively short piece, I thought we, uh, Brian, maybe we could get you to read quite a, quite a bit of it so people can listen to the, to the beautiful prose, which I think illustrates um, Emerson's teaching in part. Could you read for us the last um, two paragraphs, uh, beginning maybe from the third sentence of the longer of those two? Mm-hmm. Is that the question returns? Uh, Yes. Yeah, good. The question returns, what shall we do? I confess all attempts to project and establish a cultus with new rites and forms seems to me vain. Faith makes us and not we it, and faith makes its own forms. All attempts to contrive a system are as cold as the new worship introduced by the French to the goddess of reason. Today, pasteboard and filigree, and ending tomorrow in madness and murder. Rather let the breath of new life be breathed by you through the forms already existing. For if once you are alive, you shall find they shall become plastic and new. The remedy to their deformity is, first, soul, and second, soul, and evermore, soul. A whole popedom of forms. One pulsation of virtue can uplift and vivify. Two inestimable advantages Christianity has given us. First, the Sabbath, the jubilee of the whole world, whose light dawns welcome alike into the closet of the philosopher, into the garret of toil and into prison cells, and everywhere suggests, even to the vile, the dignity of spiritual being. Let it stand forevermore a temple, which new love, new faith, new sight shall restore to more than its splendor to mankind. And secondly, the institution of preaching, the speech of man to men 
essentially the most flexible of all organs, of all forms. What hinders that now? Everywhere, in pulpits, in lecture rooms, in houses, in fields, wherever the invitation of men or your own occasion leads you, you speak the very truth as your life and conscience teach it and cheer the waiting, fainting hearts of men with new hope and new revelation. I look for the hour when that supreme beauty, which ravished the souls of those Eastern men and chiefly of those Hebrews, and through their lips spoke oracles to all time, shall speak in the West also. The Hebrew and the Greek scriptures contain immortal sentences that have been bred of life to millions, but they have no epical integrity, are fragmentary, are not shown in their order to the intellect. I look for the new teacher that shall follow so far those shining laws that he shall see them come full circle, shall see their rounding complete grace, shall see the world to be the mirror of the soul, shall see the identity of the law of gravitation with purity of heart, and shall show that the ought, that duty, is one thing with science, with beauty, and with joy. Thank you. Okay, so the whole address is meant to flush out what he understands to be this thing called the sentiment of virtue, which he says is a reverence and delight in the presence of certain divine laws. And it turns out to be um, more about the inner world of the human soul or mind than about the outer world. Um, But that last resounding uh, completion of the address is him sort of saying, you know, preach in a new way. Um, and I'll give it a little more generally, since I suspect readers are interested in effective rhetoric, rhetoric more generally. Um, I think it's fair to say, and maybe not controversial for for uh, me to say, that in this piece, he thinks, if you're a leader and you think your best days are behind you in whatever organization you're leading, you ought not to be a leader, or you cannot be a leader. Right? That's not the way to lead. So step down at that point if you think the good is always in the past. So what's the alternative? Yeah, this has been uh, pretty puzzling to me. I've read this now a couple of times, and uh, each time I start out very skeptical, and he's won me over by the end. But um, let me just give one piece of my skepticism, and we'll see if we can figure out what he's thinking. Uh, It looks like he thinks that... um, Speech is necessary, but something like the communication of a revelation or an inspiration is not possible. You need to have it for yourself. So one way that I could put this is um, if you have a revelation, you have to talk about it, but you shouldn't expect that talking about it will communicate the revelation to somebody else. It could be the occasion for a revelation, but it's not the content of the revelation that's being communicated. Because to do that, it looks like, is the error that the church made. It's falling back on the repetition of forms or something like that. And I'm trying to understand exactly what he's thinking of here or what an example might be. Yeah, yeah, that's nice, Jeff, because you make me... In a nutshell, he thinks we have to inspire other human beings to evoke what's already in them. But I'd like to just dwell or note uh, the literal use of that word inspire, because I think we use it quite quite loosely often. But it, it's sort of like he's saying, you know, breathe life into someone um, or speak in such a way that you evoke life that's already in them, a type of vitality that's already in them. And I'd add to what you said, Jeff, it looks like you, that doesn't mean giving them a simply rational argument, hence Emerson's right. prose, right? One has to stir the, 
the right passions. We still have to say what those are, but it's you play music with the words or by way of words upon somebody's soul. And and the the where he makes that very concise is in that paragraph that starts, and now my brothers, you will ask. Um, he says, and now my brothers, you will ask what in these desponding days can be done by us. The remedy is already declared in the ground of our complaint of the church. We have contrasted church with the soul in the soul. Then let the redemption be sought wherever a man comes. There comes revolution. The old is for slaves. So this mm-hmm. is and so you know when when Jeff was talking about when you know come in skeptical and he manages to convince you like I don't know if that, that's not a very rational argument necessarily you know it's very metaphysical but that's basically the point where I go yeah let's <laughs> right. do that uh, right and so yeah, I think yeah. that where I where I see him coming from to a degree and I think he sets this up in the beginning um, in the very first paragraph where he's basically talking about nature. Right in the refulgent summer, it has been a luxury to draw the breath of life, and he goes on about the grass and the stars and all this thing, and then he finishes with gravity, and so I think he's pointing to a degree um, about a, a the natural revolution that is kind of life and death, and it's life and death of ideas through this dialectic process, but it's also you know something I was trying to figure out as I was reading this was you know, the relationship between nature and morality. Because I think that's what he's trying to get at to a degree is trying to make those laws of gravitation um, and and the laws of morality within the human soul be a little bit more muy simpatico than like Jeff mm-hmm. was saying, like just um, um, repetition of the forms of uh, the ideations that come from a, you know, repetitive soul. Yeah, that's good, because um, maybe part of my initial skepticism is that at the very beginning, he sounds a little bit like Kant, where he tries to distinguish the natural world or the phenomenal world from the world of the soul or the noumenal world. But that's not the final word. That's only his opening move, right? Because by the end, it looks like we're supposed to hope for the possibility or even believe in the possibility that uh, the two things could be one. So maybe if we tried, and this is connected also to Lisa's request for us to say what the sentiment that we should be inspired with really is, could we try to say what the content of his vision of the world and then of the soul uh, are? I guess contents plural, right? Like what does he think we see when we see the refulgent summer? And then what does he think we see when we look inside ourselves? Yeah, this uh, might be nice to read a bit more, but those first three paragraphs tracks a motion that you're describing, Jeff, and that you noted, Brian. It begins with this wonderful imagery of the beauty of the external world. The air is full of bright birds and sweet with the breath of pine, the balm of Gilead and the new hay. And I'll skip a bit. Um, Man seems a young child and his huge globe a toy. So that seems to be the beautiful thing. But then he has a transition. But when the mind opens and reveals the laws which traverse the universe and make things what they are, then shrinks the great world at once into a mere illustration and fable of his mind. What am I and what is, asks the human spirit with a curiosity new kindled but never to be quenched. 
And then he shifts from there to the moral. So yeah, it looked to me like what we thought was our comportment to a beautiful external world turns out to be less beautiful than an internal world. But then that internal world at its most meaningful level for him speaks of an ought, which somehow seems to permeate, at least for the human being, the external and the internal realms, how we in, how we comport ourselves in the world. And it looks like he thinks all human beings have that um, reflexivity or reflection of internal and external or the coming together, as you put it, Jeff. And it looks that's the thing that the good orator has to speak to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is the thought something like... Um... And I'm just trying to restate what you said or unpack what you said. Is the thought something like um, our first experience of the external world is that it is either providential or, or teleological, that it's somehow fitted to us. But uh, then when the mind opens, that teleology seems imperfect, but we're thrown back on some internal teleology that seems more perfect. Jeff, is, is that the motion? You're, you're yeah. going to want to define teleology first. Yeah, yeah. Our, Sorry about that. The, the notion that things are are oriented toward and caused by a goal, right? So I mean it only in the kind of weak sense. Not not that everything is headed towards the same purpose, although that that might be ultimately the the teaching here. But that everything's kind of fitted to us. It's for us somehow. Well, could we add to that, Jeff, as to pick up the earlier part of the conversation? Fitted for us, but. Well, maybe I even want to revise, actually, uh, mm. hold, hold your position as a second position. Um, the faulty position that he's arguing against looks at the external world and thinks, I'm a worm as a human being, or something like that. And and and, and Jesus Christ is um, so far superior to me, God's so far superior to me. All that way of thinking leads to a sort of... Um, misplaced reverence for the past and that's right. that's what i'm calling nihilism the disbelief in the possibility of an actual future of growth right everything it's all happened it, it, the world's gone to hell in a hand, hand basket everything in the past was better but once mm-hmm. we make the move you were talking about jeff then it looks like no because um the divine is is in the human being right this separation of the great authority and the worm human being is a false one, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the world is not a fallen world, right? right? And the, e- the evidence about the world, our, our primary experience of the world is not as a fallen world. Yeah. I wonder how much of this is driven by, you know, our sense of mortality, right? You know, he's, he's implicitly, to some degree, talking about in this kind of... Um, you know, beautiful oratory about nature, um, you know, life and death, mm-hmm. right? Like rebirth, but of, of this kind of idea, but also of life and death. And it seems like when, when you're talking about, you know, people that want to look back and think, oh, the, the good days are behind us, that that's really having to look and say, I'm going to die and I'm going to die soon. So I want to go back to this, um, you know, state before now. And so that's kind of a natural, I think, inclination to a degree. Yeah, but I that, think that's actually e- really helpful because um, one of the things that's not mentioned in that first paragraph, I would say, is something like death. And so you're putting your finger on a contrast with the uh, 
maybe the the more typical teaching on this score, right? So whereas um, one alternative would be when I think about myself, the first thing I say is I'm mortal. Uh, I used to be immortal. I used to dwell in paradise, but now there's been a sin and I've fallen. But here it looks like um, the world provides for me. I'm like a child. And even though I don't exactly know why it provides for me, I have a kind of confidence that it's going to sustain me, right? So the first thought is not of death in um, the way Emerson lays it out. And that's a, that's a kind of pointed contrast, maybe with the story of Genesis. I think, and right after the, the part that Lise read, I think gets a little bit at this where he says, Behold these outrunning laws, which our imperfect apprehension can see, tend this way and that, but not come full circle. Behold these infinite relations, so like, so unlike, many yet one. I would study, I would know, I would admire forever. These works of thought have been the entertainments of the human spirit in all ages. What that says to me is something like, cherish the things that are eternal in nature, right? cherish the things that are eternal in human nature but you and and this may contradict the what you said least so i don't because i think you're right about that concept of belittling yourself for god and the church and that kind of thing so i don't know if it's not it's not necessarily belittling um yourself um but seeing how you incorporate in those things that are um those outrunning laws, those infinite relations and seeing how you fit in, but maybe to a degree accepting that your time to do it is limited. Um, yeah, I, I just find the emphasis. Um, I think this is consistent with what you're saying, Brian, but maybe, maybe af after the same starting point goes in a different direction. So let's see. As Jeff points out in the passage I read um, states, it begins with the notion that man is like a child and the world is a globe. It's a ball, right, to be played with, to be joyful about. Um, and I agree with you, Brian, that it's, I don't think this is, um, I don't think age, psychic age is necessarily linked to the body, but they often go together. And so I often think people, the sense of, oh, everything was better in the past, the good old days comes with an aging body like that um <laughs> although they don't have to um but i think that's the case typically the case maybe even um but i thought here the thrust forward for him is not to be thinking about actually one's mortality much at all if at all yeah no i think i, I think you're right because you know that it, that isn't in here it, it's more kind of what we're talking about with 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 him, with kind of a, a more greater focus on your impending demise, there's a there's there's an instinctual piece of, gosh, I wish I was younger, and then I think it, that that you then you extrapolate that to your circumstances, whatever your circumstances were when you're younger, and you're like, well, those were the good old days, and it wasn't the good old days, because, you know, your the politics or the church or your situation was any better. It's just that your knees didn't hurt as much, you know? <laughs> so I think that that's kind of part of the psychic relativity in yeah. examining this. I guess maybe our, our conversation is almost encouraging me to um, be much bolder in my formulation than I was earlier. Um, let me suggest this and see what you guys think. Um, this this is um, 
a total revision of Genesis in this sense. Uh, our experience of the world indicates that we are still in paradise, according to this account. The fall never happened. Right. That part of the story is wrong. Right. Right. There is a kind of transition that needs to happen, and I'm curious about the reasons why it needs to happen, because we need to have a moral law, and it's not because we're going to violate a prohibition that we don't understand and couldn't possibly uh, adhere to. There's another reason why we're going to become uh, moral in this account. But yeah, this this is a complete rewriting of Genesis, isn't it? Yeah. Can I, can I read a chunk? To support that again, especially for listeners who maybe haven't read it, but I'm going to begin in the fifth paragraph, the intuition. It starts that way if you guys want to follow along. I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs. The intuition of the moral sentiment is an insight of the perfection of the laws of the soul. These laws execute themselves. They are out of time, out of space, and not subject to circumstance. Thus, in the soul of man, there is a justice whose retributions are instant and entire. He who does a good deed is instantly ennobled. He who does a mean deed is by the action itself contracted. He who puts off impurity thereby puts on purity. If a man is at heart just, then in so far is he God. The safety of God the immortality of God, the majesty of God, do enter into that man with justice. If a man dissemble, deceive, he deceives himself and goes out of acquaintance with his own being. A man in the view of absolute goodness adores with total humility. Every step so downward is a step upward. The man who renounces himself comes to himself. See how this rapid intrinsic energy worketh everywhere, righting wrongs, correcting appearances, and bringing up facts to a harmony with thoughts. Its operation in life, though slow to the senses, is at last as sure as in the soul. By it a man is made the providence to himself, dispensing good to his goodness and evil to his sin. Character is always known. Thefts never enrich, alms never impoverish, murder will speak out of stone walls. The least admixture of a lie, for example the taint of vanity, any attempt to make a good impression, a favorable appearance, will instantly vitiate the effect. But speak the truth, and all nature and all spirits help you with unexpected furtherance. Speak the truth, and all things alive or brute are vouchers. And the very roots of the grass under, underground there do seem to stir and move to bear you, you witness. See again the perfection of the law as it applies itself to the affections and becomes the law of society. As we are, so we associate. The good by affinity seek the good, the vile by affinity the vile. Thus of their own volition souls proceed into heaven, into hell. That's heaven and hell on earth because of your comportment in the world. You are your own providence. I'm a little confused by the one line at the end of that first paragraph you read. You read the man who renounces himself comes to himself. That one, that one I'm not sure I understand totally. Or at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, well, these have to be two different senses of himself, right? So it could be something like um, 
the man who renounces attachment to his particularity in some sense comes to himself as God, to put it bluntly, right? Or as soul, as Emerson suggests later, right? In other words, it looks like he... um, What's the way to say this? It looks like there's something about the particularity of nature that is mute and imperfect in comparison to the generality of the human interior. And by um, orienting yourself towards that general thing, you get back anything you might lose um, by looking at your, uh, your particularity. Maybe, maybe uh, you guys have a better way of saying what I just tried to articulate, but that's my sense of it. I doubt that, but I'm I'm up for some repetition and aversion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I connect. I I also when I first read that stumbled a bit on that line because um, he's not about self abasement. Um, so I I connected it with the vanity that he speaks against in the ne- in the next paragraph when he says, you know, if, if, if you become small when you start to concern yourself with your particularity in this um, way that isolates yourself from the larger picture. So I would I did it sort of geometrically. It's like um, you could regard yourself as sort of a line or a unit in a world of other things, foreign things. But the right way to see it, again, going back to the opening image of sort of reflection, is to realize that the, these distinctions are superficial, the inner, the outer, me, you, and that the human soul in its um, divinity is more like a circle. It, it encompasses all things and is encompassed by all things, if I could put it that way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I also had a thought experiment that I that helped me a little bit here, um, and maybe this also um, would help indicate how uh, radical a thought this is. Um, that you know, when the uh, the tyrant soldiers knock at the door and say, "Tell us where your friends are. We're here to arrest them," uh, I'd be very tempted to lie. And if I ask myself why that is, I think it's because the things, there's no guarantee to, to my mind there that the things in the world are going to um, work out well, right? I might, there might be some mystery to me as to how things are going to turn out, and I might suspect they turn out badly if I tell the truth. And I think Emerson's claim here, um, and I don't know how strongly we're to, to take it, is that um, that's me thinking of myself in the isolated image that Lise just suggested, and that if I can somehow... Um, orient myself to uh, a more comprehensive sense of myself, uh, I'll have confidence that telling the truth in these circumstances is going to uh, work out well somehow. There's a kind of internal providence that's going to more than compensate for the uncertainty of the external world. Hmm. Does that seem persuasive and and correct? Um, Not initially. (laughs) For this reason, it sounds very Kantian. Like like I have um, and I... And I, my sense is Emerson is, um, for the reasons we were saying initially, uh, and in contradistinction to Kant, who's, who is very in favor of ra- reason and articulating laws and a little suspicious of sentiments, I, my sense was Emerson um, is more about the sentiment, that, that he may not mean truth in a Kantian sense so much as a proper feeling, comportment toward the world, um, so I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say, you know, he, he comes down on the side of saying lying is always a sin. He might say a certain type of truth telling is actually a falsehood, if that, I know that sounds paradoxical, but, um, and why do I, let me back that up with a little bit of 
textual evidence. Um, if it were the case that it all works out, it's all providential, he wouldn't need to write the piece. Right? We wouldn't have a problem because somehow it would be all okay in the wash in the end. But he does think we have one, right? That we are drifting toward nihilism and uh, a lack of hope about how we're going to grow or develop or what a, what a positive vision of the future could be. And that's going to take a real active rhetoric and participation in, to go back to what you were saying earlier, Jeff, inspiring human beings, being a leader. So I think where that gets a little tricky for me, Lisa, is I, I think, you know, like I said earlier that he's, he's any, and where you read, um, about man's virtue, uh, and that it being natural, you know, that when, that when you are virtuous, you kind of know it that that speaks to some kind of naturalness in virtue. And so is it, <clears throat> then the question is if we have this inherent virtue in us and we know it when we do it, um, and it just kind of springs up without like coaching without like, well, it just, I'll, I'll take that without coaching <laughs> with just springs up. Right. Um, then you could say, okay, well, this this um, this fascination with the old, this being closed off to the new, is unnatural, right? It is not in keeping with this natural virtue that we have. It is it is looking back towards a false idea of God and a false idea of ourselves. But then you brought up the point that you know that's why he wrote this. But if you have to write it. You know, then it begs the question: Well, is is this natural? Because if he has to make the case for it, and has to write and has to call people to this new idea, um, then he's you know not forcing, maybe inspiring versus restricting is kind of what he's doing. But it still seems like if if humanity is naturally going into one of these two directions, either understanding that virtue is is natural or thinking that the old ways are better and that we should be closed off. Like one of those is probably natural. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is, actually, I don't know what I'm asking. I do want to say that I really like um, Risky Jeff. You know, like <laughs> Gen Genesis is fake. I'm going to come up with thought experiments. Like, you know, I think you're going to, I think we have to put this like not safe for work uh, label on the podcast. <laughs> We're getting out there. This is not a PG 13. This is podcast. not a PG 13. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not a PG PG 13 thought experiment. And also like, I, I don't wonder how many Johnny's we're going to uh, kind of uh, piss off with, um, the first part of the reading where we called out all attempts to contrive a system are as cold as the new worship introduced by the French to the goddess of reason. And we have uh, this, yes. you know, for the, for the listeners that don't know, we have this saying at, at St. John's, this kind of aphorism that reason knows no authority. And so I thought it was really funny that we're, we're both kind of, we're all kind of like, Oh, this is really interesting. And he's and specifically the guillotine knows no refutation, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. So we got, we got a lot of stuff here. Okay. So a lot of stuff. I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think this contradicts, uh, reason knows no authority in the way I, I think it's meant um, in that saying. Just that, don't tell me this is true because tradition says it's it, this is the way it's always been. That's not enough of an authority. You have to give me an account. But that's not to say that the account cannot can't be inspired by, supported by, even motivated by passion. So I guess I reject the dichotomy. Um, but I think, let me go back to what I... 
to how I hear your question, Brian, and tell me if this is unfair, but I get this question quite a lot from students um, who are studying Nietzsche, and of course Nietzsche and Emerson are quite similar here, but um, when he says things like, well, you don't really have free will, strictly speaking, you know, you have a, cer- a certain type of nature that's that's given to you, this often reasonably um lead students to say, well, then why am I reading this? Because I'm sort of fixed. And the image I use, which I think will work quite well for you, Brian, since you were were or are um, a coach, is something like this. Look, I might grant that I have a nature, and say that pretty vaguely since I might not know the, f- the full landscape of my nature or the weather pattern, so to speak. But that doesn't mean, um, say, if I'm going to the gym, that I don't know what kind of music plays my soul such that I'm more effective at the gym, right? That's the kind of thing I think he has in mind. So we have um, all human beings, he suggests, have the capacity to be inspired. That doesn't mean they're all capable of simply inspiring themselves, right? And they have the the capacity and and maybe the inclination. um, I I wouldn't want to rank these two things in in their strength just yet. It might be different with different people, but to become enervated, Right. So we have these two things within us. Um, and his goal is to say, look, I'm looking for the sort of political leader or moral leader, or poetic leader that doesn't um, make the enervating part, the weakening part stronger. And again, he says that happens if you're constantly castigating, oh, we're so terrible. Look at all our errors. Look at our uh, where we're going. It's all gone to hell in a handbasket. That's depressing. Right. Um he wants somebody who's able to to rejuvenate the other part of us, right? Which is the part that can be inspired, that has that childlike wonder, um, and that can move forward into a future, saying, "I can do this. I can. I can be better than what I am today." Here's my vision. That's the type he calls, sort of strange term, the imperial guard of virtue. That's the speaker he wants, right? Does that make sense? Again, back to music. It's just because I have a palette of passions doesn't mean I, I can't actually consciously know that I can manipulate those passions. I do it all the time with my gym music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the example seems persuasive to me. Um, I guess my hesitations, at least, and maybe they're, they're different from Brian's hesitations, but mine at least have to do with the uh, um, kind of music that's playing, if I can put it that way, or the kind of soul that he's hoping to produce um, under the influence of this music, and uh, your your initial comment, and maybe I'd like to to hear more about this. Your correction of my uh, Kantian thought experiment. Um, I think that the part I'm especially inclined to grant is that um, whatever is here is not a kind of rationalistic teaching. Right? He's not suggesting that there's a categorical imperative, right? Which is Kant's way of talking about what morality demands of us. Right? He's not suggesting that. Um, uh, we should never lie because lying is always bad because we can't will it as a universal rule. Um, again, the way that Kant talks about morality. But he does seem to be um, promoting a mood that says that there'll be some kind of support, some internal support for um, turning to our higher impulses, if I can put it that way that outweighs any kind of loss we might have feared at the hands of the world from orienting ourselves by those higher impulses. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I might need a little more from your last bit, but but 
the part I understood, yes, it does seem fair. I guess I'd put it this way. Um, I think I mentioned this at the beginning. He is literally practicing what he preaches, right? Mm. So I'm not so sure he thinks he can create the imperial guard of virtue, but he might think he is one, like, mm-hmm. and that he might inspire those who who have that capacity, um, but maybe didn't know how to employ it. But if if he's talking to nobody who has that capacity, he at least inspires his listeners and readers to be better than they were. Right. So he says, look, let me show you how this is done. I'm not, it's not like I have no rational content or no account of what I'm saying. It's not, it's not poetic gobbledygook. Um, um, It does have a robust content, but I've also, I also know two things. One, I know how to couch it in beautiful music, beautiful language, poetic language. And two, I know something about human psychology, right? Which is, it responds to inspiring music slash poetry, right? um, Right. Right. There are, whatever their relative weight is compared to um, attacks from the world that we might have to suffer, there are internal resources that Christianity is not taking advantage of, but rather um, suppressing. Right. Yeah. And he, I mean, he's very specifically saying, I think, go be a heretic. You know, all, all of the things that you take as doctrine, um, you know, don't, don't, don't accept them as doctrine and, and don't, don't worry about being bold, you know, is that, that part that you read, uh, initially at least, um, or maybe I read it. Uh, I look for the hour when that supreme beauty, which ravished the souls of those Eastern men and chiefly of those Hebrews and through their lips spoke oracles to all time shall speak in the West also, you know? So saying basically like nobody has, really um given as and he uses the word beauty you know i look for the hour when that supreme beauty um you know was basically spoken by the hebrews and the greeks um to be to be spoken differently spoken specifically to the west you know Mm -hmm. in a language that they understand not not english but in a way that they understand through. So through the poetic license, kind of what you're talking about, Lise. But also with this kind of idea of virtue or morality or whatever we want to call it as the um, not, not imperial, well, imperial, yes, but, all, but as, the, as, the, as the guide star, right? As the North Star um, in, in what you're talking about it. But make it convincing in the spiritual sense, is I think what he's trying to do, which, you know, is, is super tough, right? Like, you know, we're, we're all rebellious St. John's types who go, show me where it says that, you know? Um, but, you know, I think that even, uh, and also we're, are, are not, not generally afraid to question, you know, the authors that we engage with, right? Not, not hesitant, not super hesitant to say, I think they're wrong here, but I think, all of us to a degree are hesitant to put forth new ideas, right? Especially around things like virtue, you know, like which of us is going to go, okay, Socrates had some good ideas. Um, (laughs) but let me take a stab at this totally original, you know, and not a critique or conversation necessarily, but a, you know, from, from heaven, I have received this information with that type of gravitas and with that type of boldness. I think we, we can find textual evidence that he's saying something like that. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit around that weird 
phrase, imperial guard of virtue, and I thought that this might actually appeal in particular to to a sort of military spirit um, insofar as it speaks of, of a certain type of courage. But So it's a paragraph that begins in such high communion. If you number them, it's paragraph 31. Um, and maybe I'll just start from the top of that, although it's going to be... Uh, there's going to be a missing transition, so we're jumping in the, into the middle of a thought, but if we could get past that, we'll get to the imperial guard of virtue. He says, In such high communion, let us study the grand strokes of rectitude, a bold benevolence, an independence of friends, so that not the unjust wishes of those who love us shall impair our freedom, but we shall resist, for truth's sake, the freest flow of kindness, and appeal to sympathies far in advance, and... What is the highest form in which we know this beautiful element? A certain solidity of merit that has nothing to do with opinion and which is so essentially and manifestly virtue that it is taken for granted that the right, the brave, the generous step will be taken by it and nobody thinks of commending it. You would compliment a coxcomb doing a good act, but you would not praise an angel. The silence that accepts merit as the most natural thing in the world is the highest applause. Such souls, when they appear, are the imperial guard of virtue, the perpetual reserve, the dictators of fortune. One needs not praise their courage. They are the heart and soul of nature. O oh, my friends, there are resources in us on which we have not drawn. There are men who rise refreshed on hearing a threat, men to whom a crisis which intimidates and paralyzes the majority demanding not the faculties of prudence and thrift but comprehension immovableness the readiness of sacrifice comes graceful as beloved as a bride yeah so this i think might speak to my worries or wondering about exactly what the internal providence promises and makes the possessor of it feel it looks like um, he wants to stress uh, resilience right in other words there's uh, a temptation to regard a setback as a sign that somehow maybe this is even um, a, a strong inclination to regard setbacks as signs that somehow uh, things are are ordered against us and this kind of human being does not have that reaction Right. If anything, they regard setbacks as occasions for showing what they are more fully. Yeah, I love the the next line. There is is reminds me of a lot. I'll, I'll read it really quick, just because I think a lot of our veteran community and especially Marines will <clears throat> relate to this. Napoleon said of Messina that he was not himself until the battle began to go against him. Then, when the dead began to fall in ranks around him, awoke his powers of combination, and he put on terror and victory as a robe. So it is in rugged crisis, in unwearable endurance, and in aims which put sympathy out of question that the angel is shown. But these are the heights that we can scarce remember and look up to without contrition and shame. Let us thank God that such let thank God that such things exist. You know, like I had a, I had a friend of mine in the Marine Corps um, who I was with in, in Fallujah in 05. Um, and I remember having drinks with him at some point afterwards. And, you know, he was just like, you know, I, I had gotten off active duty and he was still, you know, doing it. And, you know, he was running into some issues and, you know, um, he's like, Brian, he's had this 
Boston guys. Like Brian, you know, we're we're uh, we're break glass in, cl- in case of war, guys. You know, we're not this <laughs> yeah. this garrison stuff coming back. Like that's that's not our style. Like we got to get out there, um, and you know, break glass in case of war, and it's it's kind of a constant um, issue for people in the military because it's it's very difficult to find people that are both, you know, totally okay with being in a in a B billet and doing staff work for three years and then mm-hmm. totally okay at going and deploying and hooking and jabbing. Um, it's very rare to find people that are good at both. Um, and so people usually tend one way or another. <laughs> and so so it's, you know, as my, my buddy Kevin uh, called me a guy that is a break, breaking, break, break glass in case of war. I take a great heart in, in this part of the, yeah. the paragraph. Yeah, yeah. And and by the way, I do think that um, maybe in the following paragraph, there's some suggestion of uh, what uh, these imperial guards of virtue do in times of peace, if I can put it that way. Although maybe this also would even extend into what we're calling times of war. But oddly enough, it looks like Emerson is suggesting that they should go to church and preach, which I take to mean something like uh, come together with um, other human beings and try to inspire them by talking in a strong personal way about uh, what's inside them, namely this this uh, confidence that uh, virtue contains its own reward, right? That it renders you superior to fortune somehow, right? So when they're not actually exercising these virtues, they're trying to um, pass their overflow to the people around them in some kind of regular um, communal way, it looks like. Yeah, just to punctuate something that is, um, you said, Jeff, but I just don't want our listeners to, to miss it. It doesn't mean preaching in the or, or uh, the, the literal way of being at church, right? I think I think Emerson thinks he's doing this type of preaching here, and he ends the first thing that Brian read. Right, these human beings shall show that the ought that duty is one thing with science, with beauty, with joy. They'll show the interconnections of these things. So I, I guess I say not only are they a preacher, an orator, a rhetorician, but possibly a writer that can show um, or make manifest uh, um, the uh, accounts that join these things, but more than that, the sentiment that runs through them all. Um, and just w- one more thing about this Imperial Guard um, and what's required for the soul that breaks glass, right? It's, it's not... Um, as Brian was saying earlier, it's not a cautious soul. There may be some recklessness about it, but in particular, he says um, at one place that he, that he loves this type, and he says, um, noble provocations go out from them, inviting me to resist evil, to subdue the world, and to be, capital B. So I think for him, uh, again, this is sort of Nietzschean, but to be this type, to be alive, is to thrust out into the future and make it your own. Like it's a, it's about a certain type of motion, not about trying to preserve um, the past or preserve what you are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, my other friend who I know listens to this Paul ca- mm-hmm. podcast. So hi, Paul. <laughs> we'll love this story, which is um, from the basic school, um, <laughs> basic officers course, which. All, all enlisted guys love it when officers go, well, this one time at basic <laughs> school. <laughs> my, uh, my platoon commander was just rambling a bit and randomly just 
was, you know, talking about the, the kind of people that you want to fight and the kind of people you don't want to fight and you do want to fight and just that kind of fighter warrior ethos. And he said, the guy that you have to worry about in a bar fight is not the guy that's in front of his buddies who's, you know, loudly and violently gesticulating and talking smack. It's the guy that's standing behind him, standing still and smiling and just mm-hmm. waiting for the fight to start. Right. Um, and so it seems like what Emerson is saying to a certain degree is, is look for the fight. Uh, not necessarily combat with somebody, not necessarily decking somebody in a bar, but look for the fight and be joyful in it because that's where the revolution comes from. And that's where tearing down the old and renewing your soul comes from. So don't shy away from it. Smile and hope it happens soon. Yeah, yeah. rejuvenation. Yeah, that's right. Making young again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are about at time, guys. So right. thank you. Uh, thank you to our audience for uh, continuing to listen and support. We got a few more donations recently. So yep. thank you to everybody that's oh, hey. contributed <laughs> Very to the show. Um <laughs> You know, we uh, we greatly appreciate your support. If you want to support us, you can go on our website and uh, and donate. Um, every little bit helps. Uh, so thank you, Lise. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, yeah, thank you, listeners. Good to talk with you all. Thanks to listeners, and uh, talk again soon, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Good talking with you both. Take care. Okay? Bye bye.